really good to be with you all this morning and to spend this time in this section of John as we begin our reflections upon Missions Month. On the cornerstone of our church, the cornerstone of this building, you'll find a Bible verse, a verse that was very foundational to those who started this congregation, a verse that has been followed throughout the history of our church and a verse that still very much animates the life of our church today. John chapter 20, verse 21 is on the cornerstone. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The cornerstone of our church reminds us that missions is built upon the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus Christ. The work of missions, the work of making Jesus famous and celebrating him because of who he is and what he has done for us. This work is based upon Jesus himself. He is the architect. He is the builder. He is the first and the last and the beginning and the end and the alpha and the omega. Without him, there is no mission. And so we begin our reflections on Missions Month by reflecting upon him, not by sharing some well-intentioned but aimless reflections, but by going to him in his word and seeing how he would have us think about the work of missions. In this text, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, we see four, four things. This is Missions Month. We are in March. We are at McLean. The title is McLean on a Mission, and I have four more M's for you. Are you ready? In this text, we see that Jesus gives us the motivation for missions, the motivation for our missions. He gives us the mandate for missions. He gives us the model for missions, and he gives us the means that we need to fulfill this mission. Motivation, mandate, model, means. Let's dive in together. First of all, we see that Jesus gives us the motivation for missions, and he does this by giving us peace. Look with me at verses 19 and verse 21. In verse 19, Jesus appears amongst them in this miraculous fashion and then says, first words out of his mouth, peace be with you. Then up in verse 21, before the verse that is on our cornerstone, we read again, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Very, very profoundly meaningful in the context in which Jesus says these words. He is appearing to them after his death and after his resurrection. And the disciples are the group of men who have all, in one form or fashion, abandoned him, neglected him, betrayed him. And so imagine how they felt as he comes into the room. What word is he going to have for them? Is he going to have a word of judgment for them? Is he going to have a word of condemnation for them? No, instead he says, peace. Imagine the relief that would have washed over them. But what does it mean that Jesus gives us peace? What kind of peace does Jesus bring? When we place this text in its larger biblical context, we see that Jesus gives us at least four different kinds of peace. Four different kinds of peace. First of all, Jesus comes bringing peace with God. Jesus brings peace with God. This is his atoning work where we, a people who ought to be fearful as we come into God's presence, ought to be nervous, ought to be concerned about dying, ought to be afraid of what will happen after death because of the things that we have done, are able to come into his presence and not hear a word of condemnation, not hear a word of judgment, but hear a word of peace. 
Why? Because Jesus has taken that condemnation, that judgment upon himself. In dying upon the cross, he has taken the punishment that we deserve so that you can go into his presence as you really are, into his presence and be accepted as a loved son, as a loved daughter, because Jesus has won peace for you. He has won peace with God. When Jesus speaks peace, he brings peace with God. Secondly, or perhaps from that, Jesus also brings peace not only with God, but peace with ourselves. Uh, we're able to have a peace in our, our consciences. We're able to be at ease with who we are and not wracked with guilt and shame because we know we've been forgiven by the Father. This week, I borrowed a friend's truck. Now, you need to understand, I drive a Honda Civic normally, day to day. And I borrowed his truck, and it's not any old truck. It's like a Ram 2500. This thing is huge, okay? It's like, I don't know, when you're sitting in it, it sort of feels like I'm as high as I am up here, okay? You just kind of look down on the world. And when you come to a junction, you're just like, I'm coming through, people, right? <laughs> you got to watch out. This guy's driving, right? And uh, I hadn't really understood the whole truck thing until I drove his truck. And I was like, um, so I borrowed my friend's truck, and that was really good of him, and I was really enjoying life in the truck, until I put a dent in it. Uh, <laughs> come on. Oh, I hate myself. Right? <laughs> and what happened was, it was such, this is so embarrassing, it's so emasculating to admit how it happened. This is like, you ready for like rookie error, schoolboy, a truck novice error, right? Um, I'd left, the, the, the tailgate was down, and I forgot that it was down. So when I looked out and I was backing up, I thought I had like two more feet until crunch, tailgate bent. Ah. Um, it, gets, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> I'm worried about having to go speak to my friend and I'm also worried about having to go speak to my wife because the thing I backed into was my house. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's this guy, yep. <laughs> Never lend me your vehicle. <laughs> um, th- th- actually, God, God has a sense of humor because I've been texting my friend, this truck sweet, and various things like that throughout the day. And then I was in the body shop getting a quote for what the repair would be. And while I'm in there, he texts me, right? And he says, how are you and the truck getting along? Okay? <laughs> and I'm like, where is he? You know? <laughs> how does he know? And I've got to be totally honest, I saw the text and didn't reply. Just didn't reply. <laughs> It's a very, very traumatic experience. So, I kind of mulled on this for a while, and you know that feeling? Have you ever done, you know, broken something that belonged to someone else, or something? You've done something of that nature, and you just can't believe you did it, and you're just, ah, oh, oh man, I just can't, can't believe I let this happen. So I kind of stewed in that for a little while, and then the morning came, and he was actually due to come over to my house, and I thought, well, I better call him before he gets here, and I called him on the phone, and I was like, dude. You asked how I'm getting along with the truck. Not very well. Okay. Um, I've put a dent in that. I'm really sorry. And he was just great. He was like, ah, oh, don't worry. Yeah, I'm sure it's not that bad. You don't feel bad about it. You know, you don't, don't have to, you know, it's fine, man. Don't worry. Okay, just total forgiveness, fool free. Um, you know, as good friends do. I can't tell you how different I felt having called him. You know? It's amazing when you receive forgiveness from someone else 
how that gives you such peace within yourself. Before I was walking around all angst-ridden, like, oh, I can't believe I did this. Now I just kind of had this exhale, kind of, oh, I'm glad he knows and I'm glad he's forgiven me. Right? This sense of peace within myself because I'd received forgiveness from another. And so you see how in a much grander, much greater way, the fact that we have peace with God enables us to have peace within ourselves. We don't have to have this cloud of judgment, this cloud of fear over our own souls because we know that we've been forgiven. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm glad I dented the truck and it doesn't mean that I'm glad I've done other things. It doesn't mean I celebrate or run out and do them again. Imagine that phone call. Adam, since you didn't mind the first time, I went and, you know, trashed the bumper, right? That's not how it works. It's this sense of forgiveness that's very fueling and motivating to put your own soul at rest. Jesus brings peace with God, but he also brings peace with ourselves. Thirdly, and again derivative from the peace that we get from God, is that Jesus brings peace not only with God, not only with ourselves, but also with other people. Jesus gives us peace with other people. And we actually rehearse this every single week as part of worship. We gather together and we sing songs of adoration, and then we move into a time of confessing. Having seen the Lord in his glory, we realize that we haven't uh, lived up to his uh, perfect standards, and so we confess our sin to him. After confession, what do we do every single week? Assurance of pardon. Assurance of pardon. Every week. Every single week. Why? Because we aren't a people who come groveling, hoping the Lord might forgive us. We come in the name of Jesus, looking to his promise that he will forgive us. And so the second we confess, we are assured of forgiveness. And then every week after that, we do the giving of the peace. Every week. As we have been given peace with God, as we have been given peace within ourselves and our consciences, so we are able to extend this peace to other people. It's a thing that overflows from us and reaches out to them. God, having a sense of humor again, gave me a great illustration for this, because the same friend I borrowed the, the truck from I came over to my house, and he was helping me move some furniture. And he picked up this chest of drawers, and as he picked it up, the bit he was holding just snapped right off. Okay? And the chest of drawers fell down, and the leg just snapped right off. Okay? And we kind of looked at each other, and I'm thinking, I broke your truck, you broke my chest of drawers. <laughs> you know? And then I'm thinking, you know, the mind's going, it's like, Mine cost $500, my mistake. Your mistake cost like 100 bucks from Ikea, okay? This is remarkably easy for me to forgive you right now, <laughs> okay? It is not that difficult for me to extend you grace, for me to extend peace to you, you know? Do not worry about this. And you see how the forgiveness we receive enables us to be forgiving toward other people really central to when we are wrestling through any sort of bitterness or anger is to process through how much we have been forgiven. And as a people who have been forgiven much, it's easy for us to then forgive much. As a people who have been loved much, it's easy for us to love much in response. God brings peace. Jesus brings peace with God, peace within ourselves, but also peace with other people. Fourth and, and finally, he also brings peace on a cosmic level. Peace with the world, with God, <clears throat> with ourselves, with others, and with the world. The gospel is spiritual, and it does bring spiritual forgiveness, and it does bring spiritual results that we can be assured of uh, eternity in heaven after death. But the gospel is not merely that. It is more than that. It is also physical. Uh, Jesus created us to have bodies and to have souls, and as he comes to redeem us, he redeems not just soul, but also body. And so we care deeply about uh, the, the, the redemption of this world. 
And so Jesus comes, and, and what does he do to prove the fact that he's the Messiah, to prove the fact that he can forgive sins? He heals people, and he um, feeds 4,000 and then 5,000. It's a really interesting thing to me. You know, Jesus has this phenomenal cosmic power. He can do anything that he wants, and he chooses to use this great might to give people dinner. It doesn't seem like that's a big enough deal to bother doing. But Jesus understands that sight and hunger are important, that physical things are important, that he hasn't created us as just spirit beings, but as physical people. And so as he comes to bring redemption, he's also bringing redemption and peace to the world. He's bringing social peace and economic peace and physical peace. He is turning back the effects of the fall in this physical realm. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do today if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? It's a good question. Think, you know, what, what might you do today if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? It's very easy for us to jump to a bunch of answers like, you know, pray, right? Ask forgiveness. Say goodbye to a loved one, something like that. His answer was really interesting. He said, I'd plant a tree. Plant a tree. Why? Because he knows his Bible and he knows that when Jesus comes back, the trees in the field are going to clap their hands and the whole world is going to flourish. The whole world is going to flourish in this spiritual, yes, but physical sense too. And so we believe in a peace that extends beyond us as individuals to our world at large. Jesus is bringing peace. Now, all of this has been said, of course, under the heading of motivation for mission. So why does this motivate us for mission? It motivates us for mission because the order of verse 21 is very important. Jesus comes to them and he says, peace be with you. Then he says, in light of the peace that I have given you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, it is the peace of the peace that I am giving you that is able to fuel your efforts and your work. Do not think that the work of missions, the work that I am sending you to do, has been given to you in order that you might earn peace with me. He's saying, no, because you have peace, you can work. In other words, the work of mission is fueled and driven and compelled by his grace toward us, by the fact that he is drawing us near and loving us, not out of some compulsion or guilt. And so through this month of March, please don't be thinking of missions and just sort of feeling bad. Feeling like, you know, there are people who are really involved and they're really active and they go on trips and they give money and I'm just not one of those people and I feel badly about myself for that. That's not, his, that's not Jesus' response. His response is, realize what I've given you. And in light of that, in light of how precious I am, find it natural to go and extend this peace to others. The motivation for missions in this text is the peace he has given us, not some striving to earn peace from it. That's the first M, motivation for missions. Second M comes in verse 21, where we see that Jesus also gives us a mandate, a mandate for missions. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me into the world, so in the same way, I am going to send you out into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, and the son so loved the world that he sent his brothers and his sisters. He is sending us uh, to continue and participate in the work that he has uh, been sent to do. Now, understand it's important that we don't 
misunderstand this point in that Jesus is not, this isn't like chain of command or delegation. It's not like, you know, I ask my older son to do something and he turns around and asks the younger son to do it. Um, it's not like, you know, Jesus has been sent to save the world and he can't really be bothered, so he's sending us. No, he's giving us this mandate, not so much this command, but a mandate, meaning the authority or the privilege of participating in the work that he has been sent to do. To us has been given the privilege of participating in his salvific work. That means we are able to be a part of the solution. He uses us in order to bring many people to himself. In many ways, it seems like a strange decision because he could snap his fingers and his will be done. But he loves his children, so he wants to involve them in it. I remember, I think I've shared this with you before, making a box of Ikea furniture and uh, I pulled all the pieces out and I pulled all the, you know, screws and attachments and everything out and you're always, I'm always missing one piece and I, you know, these things never go well for me. And I'm midway through building it and the frustration is rising a little bit and one of my children comes to help. Okay? <laughs> and that's great because I'm doing the dad thing and showing them tools and, you know, how things go on. However, uh, the help becomes frustrating, okay? And you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and my wife comes in and she sees the frustration level rising and she issues one of her great kind of profound philosophical decrees from everyday life, which is, James, it takes more love to do it this way. It takes more love to do it this way. It might be easier for me to make the flat back myself, but it takes more love to do it this way. It might be easier for God just to snap his fingers, but it takes more love for him to involve his children in this way. And so when it comes to the mandate for missions, again, get out of our heads some sort of guilt-driven command of, well, I guess we've got to go do this now. Children are pleased to help their fathers. Children love to be given a task. It's fun to be a part of the work at hand. And we have a father who is delighted to draw his children into the work that's being done. A father who is, is pleased to allow us to participate in the work of reaching those who are far from him. And so he sends us off, not in delegation fashion, but as ambassadors for him, to go into this world as those who have received peace and been changed by peace and and joyful in his peace to share this good news with other people. That is the mandate that is given to us, not an oppressive command, but a joyful participation in the work that he has for us. Second end. Third end. Give us the motivation, give us the mandate. Thirdly, and seriously, he gives us a model, a model of missions that comes in verse 20. In verse 20, we read that after meeting with his disciples, he showed them his hand and his feet. Shows them his hands and his feet, or his side, sorry. And what we're pointing towards here is, of course, on one hand, Jesus is demonstrating to them that it is really him, But more than that, he is pointing towards a principle that the rest of the Bible makes profoundly clear, unambiguously clear. And that's simply that without suffering, there is no salvation. Without suffering, there's no salvation. Without wounds in hand and sight, we cannot be forgiven. And similarly, without suffering, there can be no mission. 
Without suffering, there can be no mission. As Jesus, our elder brother, suffered in order to fulfill his work, so we also will suffer if we are to fulfill and participate in this work. Some texts for you. John 15, verse 20. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If I suffered, so will you. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Christ suffered to be the model to show us what our lives will be like. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Love that verse. Since Christ suffers, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Get in the mindset that life is going to involve suffering if you're going to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. History is littered with Christian men and with Christian women who have suffered for the sake of Christ, who have risked and indeed lost reputation and finances and health and relationships and even their very lives in order that they might follow Jesus. And I wonder if we're prepared for that. I wonder if we're prepared for that. Life at McLean just now is glorious. There's a great joy and a great energy and a great momentum in this place. And I love that we're having problems fitting everyone in. Okay, let's keep this problem up, okay? We are working on solutions, but in the meantime, keep, keep, keep causing the problem, all right? Um, but beware lest we become fair-weather followers. Are we prepared to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Consider this provocative quote from George Otis. It's our failure to thrive, he asks, in Muslim countries owing to an absence of martyrs? Can a church grow in covert strength? Does a young church need martyr models? If it does, are we prepared <laughs> to be those martyrs? Whether it's the reputation or the finances or the health or the stability or whether it's our very lives, are we prepared to suffer in those ways? Are we prepared to send our children to suffer in those ways? That the world might be one for Christ. Christ suffered to draw us near and we must suffer to draw others near in his name. And so we must prepare and prepare now. I read a very interesting quote by Richard Wurmbrand who was imprisoned and tortured in communist Romania for 14 years and he talks about the importance of preparing for suffering before it happens listen to what he says what shall we say about these tortures and will we be able to bear them if I do not bear them I put in prison 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me to betray those around me and here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering which must start now it is too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists already have you in prison we have to make preparation now before we are imprisoned in prison you lose everything you're undressed you're given a prisoner's suit no more nice furniture nice 
carpets, nice curtains. You do not have a wife anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have a library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not first renounced the pleasures of this life. The point that's being made is is simply this. It's fine to have reputation, and it's fine to have health, and it's fine to have finances, and it's fine to have life. These things are good. But we must renounce them in the sense that we see that Jesus is more valuable. That he is so precious, and the peace that we've been given internally in him is so treasured and satisfying to us that we consider these things good as they are rubbish in comparison to him. And so that when your finances are threatened, you say, I can give those up because I have what I really want. When your reputation is threatened, you can say, I can give that up because I have what I really want. When your health is threatened, you can do the same. When your very life is threatened, you can do it because the equation says it makes sense. Because in Jesus, you have the pearl of great price. And so we're given this model of suffering, and yet we're encouraged even through it. Not to think of missions as some head down, downcast uh, morbid command but to realize that as the activity that shows we prize Jesus more than anything Jesus gives us this model of missions fourth and finally we see that Jesus gives us motivation, a mandate, a model and then finally he gives us the means the means to fulfill this mission, look with me at verse 22. After he has said these things, after he has given peace and issued this mandate, we read that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing two things here. First, he is looking forward to that day on Pentecost. We read about in Acts chapter 2 that is just a few days from now. He is not actually bestowing the Spirit to them, but pointing toward that moment in a very short time when they will receive it. It is an acted out parable of sorts, pointing them towards this day that is now. And secondly, though, he is also looking back, back to Genesis. In the garden, we read that God breathes into Adam and life comes to his physical body. And so now in the gospel, Jesus breathes into us and life comes to our spiritual bodies. As Adam is given power uh, to live, so we are given power to live for him. And so we see that Jesus is not just giving us this task and then leaving us powerless to do it. He is breathing life, breathing power into us so that we can uh, live uh, and obey the commands he has set forth. And think of what he's given us. It's not a theory, it's not a reality, it's a person. It is the third person of the Trinity himself, described as our helper, our counselor, our glory, our knowledge, our truth, our deposit, our seal, our guide, our witness, our intercessor, given to us that we might fulfill the work he has set before us. This is such a powerful thing, I don't want to cheapen it with an illustration, but you know that um, Christmas morning when you open up the gifts and there's always a gift that says batteries not included. And it's really frustrating to see the hardware without power. 
Do you understand that God has hardwired us to do great things for him? And this isn't some cheap motivational speech. He has prepared good works in advance for us to do that we might walk in them. He has hardwired us to do great things. And in John 20, verse 22, he includes the batteries. He gives us the power source that we need in order to follow him. He never calls us to do something without equipping us to do the same And so we're not to think of missions as a headache, that we're not really sure how we can figure this thing out and make it work. We're to realize that we have been sent by the Son and we've been empowered by the Spirit that we might bring glory to the Father by following in the path he has set before us. He does not leave us without help, but has equipped us for our role in missions and has equipped you for your role in this mission. Jesus gives us all of this in the gospel. The motivation, the mandate, the model, and the means. Over the next few weeks, we're going to focus more upon this idea of missions. I invite you to attend after the service, our lunch taking place in the fellowship hall. Come along for that time. If you didn't RSVP, don't worry, come anyway. There'll be plenty of food. There's plenty of childcare. What we're going to do in that time is hear about our new ministry that we're launching today called Greater DC. How is it that we as a church can reach out to this community and meet the tangible physical needs of those who are hurting? How can we be known as a place where peace is known and extended? How can we reach out and love our neighbors? Come along to that time. Come along. Hey, free lunch. Come along and learn about what we're hoping to do in that arena. Next week, Sunday morning, we've got Christian Nowotsky, who is the uh, uh, lead planter from the Berlin Project in Germany, coming to speak to us. He's going to speak about how new churches enable a community to flourish. It'll be a really helpful time. During both worship hours, we'll also have a special Sunday school class where we will uh, lay out our vision uh, for church planting from McLean. invite you to attend both that class and that service uh, next week. And then Sunday the 17th, we've got Dr. Steve Childers from the Global Church Planting Alliance who will be preaching on Sunday morning, really gifted and uh, um, challenging speaker. Uh, We'll hear from him in the morning. And then on Sunday night uh, on the 17th, we are going to give you an experience of church planting. What do I want to say about that? I want to say we're not meeting here in our beautiful facility. We're meeting down the road at Cooper, and come along and find out what we're up to. It's going to be an interesting and fun night together. This time we have set aside, uh, this month that we have set aside, is designed to focus our hearts and attention upon that thing that we are about all year long, reaching out to those who are far from God with the grace that can be theirs in Jesus. On your way out of the church this morning, look at the cornerstones on the on your right on the wall as so you exit the main, main doors back there, look at the cornerstone and know that Jesus has given us motivation, peace from him. He's given us a mandate to joyfully participate in his work at hand. He's given us a model, a model of suffering that is worth it because we prize him more than anything. And finally, of course, he's given us the means, his Holy Spirit who is with us to enable us to do the work at hand. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you that it just oozes with grace and with peace. That we need do nothing to please you because you are already pleased with us in Jesus. And so, as your dear children, we can rather follow you with purpose and with joy and and be blessed by participation in your mission to the world. Lord, would you draw near to us and make us a place that is so satisfied with Jesus, so taken with him, so enamored with him, that we find it easy to share his grace with others. We pray it all in his perfect and matchless name.